The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finland and Sweden see this, this move to join NATO as a stabilizing factor in the Baltic Sea because it... Um, streamlines the defense planning of, of the whole of the whole region then it is kind of um, also to show Russia that that there are limits um, to its uh, its actions here and that it can't uh, you know go go rogue in this region I'm David Priest publisher of lawfare and this is the lawfare podcast for July 19th 2022. In recent weeks here on the podcast, we've brought you information and insight about Swedish and Finnish attitudes toward NATO membership, and about Turkey's machinations regarding the two countries' applications. But now, Sweden and Finland have been invited to NATO, and member country ratifications are coming in, so I thought it was a good time to dive a bit more deeply into what's happening with Sweden, Finland, and NATO. I sat down with Katarina Traksh, the director of the Stockholm Free World Forum and author of the book in Swedish, The Sea of Peace, Increased Tensions Around the Baltic Sea, and with Mina Olinder from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, where she focuses on Finnish and Nordic security. We talked about Swedish and Finnish strategic perceptions and military interoperability with NATO equipment, about the geopolitical importance of the Baltic Sea, specifically the Gulf of Finland and Gotland, and about Swedish and Finnish risk perceptions as they await NATO membership. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 19th, Swedish and Finnish security awaiting NATO membership. Let's start out by setting the scene about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed security perceptions in Sweden and Finland. And then we'll we'll build on that to discuss what has happened in recent months. So first, Katarina, let's talk about this from the Swedish perspective. Um, after many years of choosing not to align, suddenly opinion polls changed, the government changed, and there was rapid movement, all because of Russians' invasion of Ukraine even though Sweden does not border Russia. Explain how that happened in Sweden. Well, Sweden does not border Russia, but we have a long history that contains several wars with Russia throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. So if you look at sort of arch enemies in our region, 
most Swedes consider Russia to be the arch enemy, even though historically, I would say that Denmark is uh, have rather been the arch enemy. We have fought more wars with Denmark, but mm-hmm. throughout the, the years, uh, Russia Russia is uh, close there in the top for that position. And did the Russian invasion of Ukraine reveal something to to Swedish, uh, the general public and the government about Russian intentions that made it more important to seek membership in NATO? Indeed it did. I mean, actually already in 2014 and for some already in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia, uh, sort of public opinion started to shift. Uh, People became more wary of Russia. Uh, politicians uh, spoke more openly about the risks of Russian aggression and we started to change our defense policy that had for decades been focused on uh, cutdowns and on minimizing the defense and uh, more specifically minimizing the territorial defense of Sweden. And that started to shift after 2014, but slowly, uh, like in many countries in Europe, Uh, Russia's uh, illegal annexation of Crimea was not taken seriously enough, I would argue. But with the open aggression towards Ukraine, uh, the open invasion of Ukraine in February this year, it became impossible to ignore. And it it suddenly became pretty obvious that Sweden's uh, former security policy would be unsustainable in such a situation. Right. Mina, let me ask you a a similar question. So Russia invades Ukraine and Finland, which does have a very long land border with Russia, has has a very similar reaction to to Sweden. Um, How did Russia's invasion of Ukraine affect Finnish security perceptions? I think that was the final red line that Russia crossed uh, when it comes to Finland. Um, As uh, Katarina already um, mentioned, um, this development of um, growing Russian aggression in the region um, or assertiveness and aggressiveness has been uh, observed already since 2014. Um, It it became clear already, as also Katarina already mentioned, um, 2008 basically that, that Russia is very willing to uh, do as it pleases with its neighborhood um, and it doesn't necessarily respect borders and international uh, treaties and uh, and um, law. So uh, what happened now was like really it was the final trigger um, for which um, which, which really like um, made it absolutely clear that no amount of like you know self restriction uh, what comes to security policy or alliances will guarantee security anymore in in Russia's neighborhood. So um, basically, Finland had already had since the nineties this so called NATO policy like uh, keeping the option to join uh, open and had also pursued like a closest possible um, cooperation level with NATO, just like Sweden as well. Um, but without like uh, applying for the full membership, and and this was um, this in full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, absolutely unprovoked and absolutely legal um, in terms of international law. That was like definitely the red line that Russia finally crossed. Uh, that um, like made uh, Finland to play this NATO card. Let's dig down on what you mentioned there a bit, and I'll turn back to you, Katarina, first for the Swedish side. 
during the past several years, and perhaps even longer, one of the less appreciated aspects of Swedish defense policy has been the fact that in very practical ways in developing military systems and equipment, it has been prepared to cooperate extensively with NATO members, uh, even if not a, a formal NATO member, but certainly it makes NATO membership easier in terms of interoperability of military systems and equipment. Talk through that a little bit. Most people don't understand well Sweden's uh, domestic arms production and the kinds of systems it produces. So talk through that and explain how Sweden is so prepared now to integrate fully with NATO systems and procedures. So yes, I, I listened earlier today to a previous podcast episode that you had here on Swedish uh, Sweden's and Finland's uh, decision to join NATO or apply for NATO membership. And mm-hmm. some of this was mentioned. And I think one important aspect to understand here is sort of how history looked in Sweden for, for the past decades. It's, Sweden is often wrongly uh, labeled as neutral uh, until now. Um, in fact, we, we were neutral until the early 1990s when we decided to apply for EU membership. And since the, the official doctrine has been uh, military non-alignment and one cornerstone of, of this military non-alignment and the previous neutrality was that we should have a defense capability of our own that was strong enough to sort of defend ourselves in case of a crisis or a conflict. This was the official doctrine. Uh, but the underlying doctrine, which was not much talked about openly, was that uh, we had an extensive cooperation with the West already during the Cold War and with NATO countries and not the least with the US. So so there's a long history of cooperation there, even in the days of neutrality and the subsequent days of military non-alignment. And of course, since we already sort of knew where we belonged, even though it was not in our official doctrine, Sweden's uh, well-developed and extensive uh, military industry complex was sort of tilted towards towards the West and towards NATO countries. And since then, uh, the uh, cooperation with NATO countries and with the US have just grown closer and closer. And we, uh, for the past years, have also had open exercises and been an official partner of NATO. And uh, the closer sort of the... Um, the cooperation began, the closer also the systems, the military systems became more compatible and interoperable with each other. So therefore also it's not a major step for Sweden's system to sort of plug into the NATO infrastructure as it is right now. Right. Uh, Mina, similar question for Finland. What about the practical considerations of getting military systems and equipment to work with NATO uh, in this new threat environment. Yeah, that's been a long-term process in in Finland as well. Uh, like uh, one Finnish analyst, uh, kind of as a joke, said Finland had its own uh, membership action plan process in the past thirty years, <laughs> uh, starting with the uh, with the uh, member uh, like like the the NATO Partnership for Peace uh, in nineteen ninety four 
than uh, since 2014, uh, Finland and Sweden both have been uh, enhanced opportunity partners. By the way, Sweden joined the partnership for peace as well in 1994. And uh, Finland has been actually one of the most active uh, like non-member countries um, to contribute to NATO missions um, and um, has been like deliberately seeking this cooperation at the highest possible level to ensure this, uh, like what Katerina already mentioned, this highest possible interoperability, so that in case that uh, joining becomes urgent, as it became now, um, that we can do it, like from, from our side, there won't be the need for a lengthy process of uh, like, like, Bringing, bringing our armed forces um, to a compatible state with NATO. So um, Finland has been working on this for a long time uh, already through um, joint exercises with NATO countries um, and, and, and also um, in the procurement decisions, this has been um, considered in the past 20 years uh, to try to buy uh, or procure equipment that is um, as highly compatible as possible with NATO standards. Um, we see this like the latest decision, for example, before any of this uh, membership perspective that, that it will happen this year became evident. Um, last December, the Finnish government decided to buy 64 uh, F-35 um, fight jets. So um, this is this was quite a remarkable decision. And, and uh, if you combine it with the uh, F-35s that also um, Denmark and Norway uh, will have um, or will will get from, from the United States in, in the coming years, in this decade. Um, this will make up quite a like remarkable fleet of, of F-35s in the Nordic region. And of course, not to forget the Swedish uh, Gripen uh, fighter jets as well. So these are just some examples of um, the, the deliberate building of interoperability. And I could maybe also note that um, since the NATO uh, membership application, Finland has added eight completely new uh, military exercises um, this year only with uh, NATO uh, partners. And uh, 12 more um, had already been planned, but have been like slightly modified or, or, or so on. So, so this will uh, bring the Finnish armed forces even uh, closer to um, NATO um, cooperation and, and standards. Uh, so this will be like a, like, um, a final step of, of that process. That is wonderful detail. And Katarina, I'm hoping you can do a similar detail for the Swedish side in terms of which... Which aspects of military hardware are are the Swedes really well prepared for because of what you described as the long period of planning on largely self-defense in terms of either uh, aircraft, in terms of the Navy? What is it that, that Sweden has emphasized in its military development and what is it that the cooperation with NATO will really uh, bring forward as an asset? Well, Sweden, in a certain way, is the, the odd one out here. Like like Mina mentioned, um, Sweden has a Gripen. We we uh, we have our own uh, fighter jets that, that we produce, and it's also been a bit of a sensitive issue with Finland lately, to, to be honest. Since uh, mm-hmm. since Saab and Gripen was very much open, Saab and Sweden was very much open for Finland to buy Gripen airplanes, of course, uh, but. 
even though I mean, even though we have a different system for fighter jets, the interoperability has already been there, right, uh, right. and uh, it's been developed through decades, uh, as I mentioned. And from a from a military standpoint, it, it can actually be seen as an advantage also to have different systems uh, for an opponent to to plan for, so to say. Um, but Sweden, besides uh, bringing a large air force to the table, so to say, uh, from the Navy perspective, Sweden is uh, has uh, submarines and is the sole uh, provider of submarines in the region. Also, Germany provides mm-hmm. it, but that's sort of a, has been seen as a strategic advantage that it can bring to NATO also. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'd like to talk about some specific uh, geopolitical issues in in the Baltic. And both of them have to do with Russia and potential conflict scenarios with Russia. Um, Mina, one of the issues, of course, and this goes back a long time for Russian leaders, is concerns about St. Petersburg, previously uh, Leningrad, previously St. Petersburg, but St. Petersburg and its access to the open waters of the Baltic and then onward to the Atlantic Ocean. And the access is actually quite limited if Estonia and Finland uh, cooperate in terms of batteries along the shoreline, because west of Helsinki, you have uh, the narrowing of the Gulf there, and you could actually, in a sense, try to bottleneck Russian ships uh, in a case of a war or a conflict scenario. Um, Talk a little bit about that, about how Finland, in a very practical sense, has some Russian security planners concerned because of its very geography. Yes, that's absolutely right. The Gulf of Finland is actually very narrow between Tallinn and Helsinki. It takes only a couple of hours to to cross it with a ferry. So that is uh, like obviously an aspect that will make uh, Russian uh, military planners somewhat nervous. But um, here, Kaliningrad, the the Russian enclave, um, not far away from the Swedish uh, island Gotland, comes into play, and I'm sure we're going to go into that as well. But, uh, for example, the Russian um, Baltic fleet um, has its main base based in Kaliningrad, and and that's exactly uh, what makes Kaliningrad so uh, strategically important for Russia, because in this kind of case that Finland and Estonia would like um, limit the 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 like, like bottleneck the Russian movements from 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 Saint Petersburg, and of course, like in terms of military, um, um, Kaliningrad uh, is is very essential. 
Um, but you're right, um, it still uh, leaves open the question how uh, Russia would then like figure out the, the transit from St. Petersburg, from the harbor. Um, but honestly, like um, in normal times, like I mean, as far as we can call these times normal at all, uh, but even with Finland in, in NATO, um, I think that the, the main interest of all actors in the Baltic Sea region will be to avoid any kind of escalation. Um, and I think that um, Russia is um, quite aware of uh, the changed strategic situation in the Baltic Sea region now that Finland and Sweden will uh, join NATO and, and of that kind of um, limitations to its room, of, room for maneuver. And uh, that is basically exactly the point also uh, why Finland and Sweden are joining, because uh, Russia has been quite assertive. And, and quite uh, aggressive uh, as well uh, in the Baltic Sea region, um, just to mention uh, like six uh, amphibious warships that uh, that were brought into the Baltic Sea um, back in January in the in the process of uh, building up the troops at the at the Ukrainian border. Uh, they they came from Murmansk to um, to the Kaliningrad base and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, Finland and Sweden. Um, see this this move to join NATO as a stabilizing factor in the Baltic Sea security architecture um, because it um, streamlines the defense planning of, of the whole of the whole region and um, Russia's actions have not been um, like developing into this like negative direction only since this year it's been a long-term process um, in the past years, um, there was already this observation, and and it also was like considered in the um, in the defense strategies and and you know uh, security analysis of the both countries that um, that the security situation of the Baltic Sea region had, had definitely uh, deteriorated deteriorated uh, because of uh, Russia's actions. So yes, that is a um, very important point, and it is kind of um, also to show Russia that that there are limits. Um, to its uh, its actions here, and that it can't uh, you know go go rogue in this region. Mm-hmm. I appreciate your your context on Kaliningrad as as well, because it is not just about the Saint Petersburg access, but the Baltic access of the uh, Kaliningrad. Uh, I don't know whether technically it's an exclave, but it is it is a outlier certainly there because no direct land access to the main territory of Russia. You have to go through Lithuania uh, or alternatively through Poland and Belarus to get from Kaliningrad on land to Russia. But of course, with the sea access um, and the Russians have put quite a bit there. So that does raise, Katerina, the question of Gotland, because in the Baltic Sea, you do have a nearly central position of the, the largest island that is wholly within the Baltic Sea, Gotland, a Swedish island. Now, as Mina pointed out, it's not that there are Finnish or Swedish or NATO plans to, to do this kind of blockade, but the Russians fear it enough that there have been scenarios drawn up, including in fiction by best-selling author Brad Thor, who I talked to recently on our sister podcast, Chatter, whereby Russian operatives actually try to take over that island, Gotland, in the Baltic Sea in order to prevent NATO forces from moving eastward. 
talk a little bit about the strategic placement of Gotland, but also the strategic issues involving the narrow channel between Sweden and Denmark exiting the Baltic and getting out into the Atlantic Ocean, the North Sea, and then the Atlantic Ocean. Well, Swedish defense planners have a lot to think about when it comes to potential scenarios with Russia, don't they? Indeed, they do. Like, and so do the Finnish ones. But uh, I think that it's interesting with Gotland how this not small island, but small when it comes to population, has become so central, not only now in a Nordic Baltic security context, but also in a NATO security concept. Uh, context and the reason for that of course is as you pointed out David that it's if you look at a map it's almost right in the middle of the Baltic Sea Uh, and it has been described as the one who controls Scotland controls the Baltic Sea region Uh, placing equipment on Gotland and placing military systems on Gotland can in fact sort of block access to um, to military help to the Baltic countries, not at least. So therefore, the, the country's strategic importance uh, has become so highlighted lately. And uh, in the beginning uh, of this uh, current uh, conflict, as uh, Mina pointed out, uh, and the entrance of the six amphibious warships into the Baltic, uh, an example of the strategic importance of Gotland could be seen there as the Swedish military decided to enhance the presence on Gotland heavily uh, in connection to this entrance of the amphibious warships. So that was just one of the latest examples of how strategically important this island is. Yes, if I may add to that, it was observed in Finland, like, whoa, okay, like even Sweden, uh, yeah. like now puts tanks on Gotland, so something's definitely up. Like if even Sweden goes that far, then that's definitely a sign of something growing. Yes. And just to give a historic perspective, I mean, Gotland during the Cold War was seen and treated in military planning as as the strategically important island that it actually is. But then as Sweden's... Um, and defense policy changed and uh, military cutdowns were introduced subsequently. Also, the military presence on Gotland was cut down significantly and at in the end abolished for two decades. And then after 2014 and Russia's uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, uh, the military presence on Gotland was reestablished again. And of course, now, once again, Gotland is in the focus of not only Nordic Baltic security, but also in a wider NATO context. Mm-hmm. We've talked separately on the podcast um, with uh, Rachel Rizzo and Nick Danforth in the United States about overall NATO dynamics involving Turkey's, I don't know what to call it, obstinance in <laughs> regarding the invitation to Sweden and Finland into the alliance. But I wanted to get Uh, drill down on the Swedish and Finnish perspectives on that. So from from what it looks like, Turkey was not opposed to NATO membership for Sweden or Finland on general concerns. They weren't worried about Article 5 commitments to Sweden and Finland. It was merely a domestic political play of trying to ensure that their concerns about Kurdish-related terrorists were taken seriously by Stockholm and Helsinki. And so they did come out with a trilateral memorandum that described the firm commitment of Sweden and Finland to crack down on no-kidding terrorism 
and terrorism financing and things of that sort. But it did not technically require anything that Stockholm and Helsinki were not already doing. There is some concern, however, that because as of the time of this recording, we're getting close to half of the members of NATO that have ratified um, within their countries and their own political procedures that have ratified the NATO membership of Sweden and and Finland. Um, There is some concern that Turkey, which has not done so yet, may raise objections again and use that memorandum as an excuse in the coming weeks to wave it in the faces of Swedish and and Finnish diplomats and say, look, you said you would take this seriously, but we haven't seen the action we're expecting. So first to you, Mina, um, but then Katerina, please weigh in after that. How seriously do you take the threat of Turkish troublemaking in this regard? And and do you think that it is going to be any obstacle from the Finnish side and then the Swedish side? Well, actually, um, since the, the issue could be, or, or it was solved, um, like surprisingly uh, quickly uh, already ahead of the Madrid summit, I had actually expected it to maybe uh, drag on a bit more. Although mm-hmm. I did think that the, you know, this this physical <laughs> meeting and the pressure created by like being confronted with your. 29 allies who are all like in favor of Finland and Sweden joining, or, or at least no one else objects, and some some are like like outright enthusiastic about it. That that could move uh, Turkey already. Um, but honestly, uh, I think that this memorandum of understanding um, was actually quite an elegant diplomatic solution to the problem uh, that that Turkey uh, created, uh, because uh, the the language is vague enough uh, not to not to oblige uh, Finland and Sweden to actually change any like practices or laws or uh, policies in that sense but it was also um, it, it entailed all the right words and and concepts for Erdogan to kind of like present it as a as a win um, domestically um, there there have been concerns and a lot of criticism on it but I thought that it was a little bit uh, like maybe a little bit of an overreaction. It has been uh, emphasized in Finland by by the state leadership, by both the president and the foreign minister, that uh, it was exactly the point of the memorandum that that like everyone can like like that Sweden and Finland don't really have to, you know, change anything. But uh, but Turkey also can can get can get something and and uh, that it's kind of a win win. And uh, since. Actually, like even after signing that, um, Erdogan still could have maybe like postponed uh, signing the accession protocols, uh, but he didn't. Uh, he was basically instantly on board with that, and that would have been like a further maybe like 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 possibility to really unilaterally further block the the process and I think that because of this extraordinary pace of ratifications um, that we have been seeing until now um, so many uh, countries actually like expediting the procedure so that they can still make it before the summer recess and and all that and and there was actually this kind of like really uh, (laughs) cute and fun like competition between the Nordics and Baltics and and Canada and like Canada and 
Um, and, and Denmark had a little uh, diplomatic dispute, which one was in the end like first to ratify. <laughs> so I think this is quite unprecedented and extraordinary. And this will like, if it goes on like this and, and uh, let's say that most NATO members have ratified Finland and Sweden, uh, maybe even all of the others have ratified the two countries until let's say end of this year. And it's only Turkey kind of pending. I don't think that uh, Turkey will have again that kind of like really strong position to to uh, like postpone it for like like some unreasonable uh, time. So I'm fairly confident right now. Uh, this like in Finland, there's this this mood that like nobody is going to uh, open any champagne bottles uh, before like all 30 <laughs> countries have ratified uh, because and there is certainly this this idea that 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 we can expect some more hiccups and exactly what you said David that uh, like Turkey will probably come and wave this memorandum of understanding in the faces of Finland and Sweden and so on so that is certainly expected but um Honestly, I am like fairly confident that Erdogan got what he wanted at the Madrid summit and that um, there will maybe be some more drama, but, but that there won't be any like substantial problems anymore at this point. I must so, say, I don't know if, this is a very yeah. serious topic and a very serious issue, but I have enjoyed Mina on uh, Twitter watching you uh, with the race to ratification as each country <laughs> tried to get their papers in because according to the uh, North American uh, treaty, what happens is the countries ratify by their own political process for ratifying uh, treaties and it must be deposited with the office of NATO inside the United States State Department in Washington. So you, you, you must have the action taken in each country, but then the communication and the actual handing off to the proper official in the U.S. State Department. And it was kind of fun for a few days to watch the countries that raced to do it and, and within minutes were trying to become the first or the second or the fifth country to do it. And now we're, we're a, as a time we're recording this, we're over a third of the countries of NATO approaching half and we'll see where we go with it. Um, Katarina, what was the Swedish perspective on the Turkish shenanigans well, it was a bit of an anticlimax, wasn't it? Because we had a historic process here of our mm -hmm. own uh, with, with the historic change in public opinion and the the, um, the NATO application signed and handed in by a social democrat government, which was uh, historic indeed since they have been uh, against mm -hmm. NATO membership uh, forever. Yeah. Uh, so so it was indeed an anticlimax. We, we almost opened our champagnes uh, already. Uh, but, uh, of course, I mean, uh, the general response has been positive to what happened in Madrid and to to the memorandum of, un memorandum of understanding that was signed. Um, I, I share what, what Mina said here with sort of a hopeful optimism here. But uh, Mina said that there is a, a general perception to not open the champagne yet in Helsinki. Um, the, the Brits have an expression that says it is isn't over until the fat lady sings and i that, that's more my concern at this moment actually i am not sure that we have seen the end of this yet um turkey has dragged on processes in nato before not the least mm -hmm. blocking the the danish uh, the, the former secretary general anders Fogh Rasmussen for a long period of time so 
it it has a history of sort of um, dragging on these processes and since uh, the memorandum of understanding was signed a couple of weeks ago we have heard again sort of turkish concerns being raised and i think this is more an issue with sweden than with finland uh, which sort of uh, reflects the the situation in sweden with a large kurdish diaspora that is politically active at the least so so i think this is more sort of signaling towards sweden and it is possible that it will continue throughout the fall, at least until the um, the elections mm-hmm. in Turkey. If I may come in real quick uh, about what you just said, Katarina, mm. uh, that's actually one thing uh, that will be interesting to see because now, uh, you know, it's not anymore up to Finland and Sweden uh, which countries um, ratify when. And obviously for uh, most countries, it will be in their interest to ratify both at once. But it will be also interesting to see whether uh, Turkey will, for example, ratify just Finland and not Sweden or, or something like that. Like there, there are still definitely like possibilities of, uh, of um, further hiccups uh, in this process from that side. I think so. And there have been some statements in the media through the past few weeks. And I think the issue that is most sensitive is the one about extraditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Sweden, and that will be sort of the one that that is raised the most uh, by Erdogan and in Turkey. I assume, Katarina, that there is no political appetite in Sweden towards changing its view of extradition in order to placate Turkey simply for the sake of easing ratification. And no, and that would be against um, against mm-hmm. several. Um, I mean, uh, against the asylum process and against mm-hmm. the pretty fundamental laws in our view of the yeah. Yeah. Uh, of democracy. So, so there is not an appetite for that. I, I don't believe it will happen either. Uh, but it's also a sensitive issue since, I mean, if NATO was a sensitive issue politically six months ago, mm-hmm. um, the, the main argument that was raised against NATO membership here in Sweden by, by its opponents was sort of we will not let let uh, Turkey dictate our foreign policy. That that right. was of course never never true, but it was still sort of a an issue that was raised. And now, if uh, it is uh, apprehended as sort of us handing over too much too much to Turkey in this process, it will become sensitive again. So uh, so I agree with what Mina said. The the, um, the memorandum was very elegantly. Uh, formulated, uh, but it does not necessarily mean that the process will continue in this way. Turkey still has to ratify our application, right. and we're not there yet. Well, let's let's close the conversation by moving from political obstacles to potential military risks. Um, Mina, first, what what risks could arise in this delicate period between? the NATO invitation and actual NATO membership? Because it almost certainly will be months, um, possibly the end of this year, possibly early next year before full ratification takes place. Um, What steps is Finland taking in order to minimize this risk and to make clear to Russia, just in case Russia is truly out of control, that it is not a good idea to try anything simply because 
Finland is not a member of NATO yet? Well, Finland has been basically like preparing for all eventualities. Um, we have had these ideas what could happen, like and, and which happened so far, which doesn't mean, of course, that they can still happen at a later point. But uh, basically, what we expected to happen would have been this usual, like let's say, Russian uh, repertoire, like um, airspace violations, um, cyber attacks. Um, maybe some, some also like like you know cruising too close to the Finnish borders, uh, and in in the in the like mm-hmm. Gulf of Finland, or or also uh, there were some scenarios uh, that the the Finnish defense forces had uh, prepared for, kind of like deliberate accidents happen some happening somewhere, like let's say somewhere in Lapland in Finnish territory, a Russian plane has an accident and, and lands lands um, in in the Finnish territory and then because there's some something sensitive on board then then there will be like Russian um, like support troops coming there and they block access for Finnish forces and and, and this kind of situation where kind of like what we imagine or, or that similar situations could uh, could be imagined in the Åland islands um, which are between Finland and Sweden and also kind of like in a strategic position especially because they are they have a demilitarized status so all of these things um, were like totally on the Finnish radar and and uh, Finland was kind of like counting uh, or expecting something like this to happen and so far um, nothing has happened it looks like russia is so tied up in ukraine that it hasn't uh, it, it just doesn't have the capacities to um, do anything especially military right. um, against finland and what is very interesting when you consider the russian threat tradition against uh, finnish and swedish nato membership uh, for example the uh, like like the kremlin has been issuing the threat of like putting troops to the Finnish border or like, like building up troops in, on, at the Finnish border in case Finland joins NATO because then they will see us as an enemy and so on, like since at least 2016. But what has happened now since Finland applied for NATO membership is that fin- uh, Russia has been actually pulling troops away from the bases close to Finnish border. Uh, just last week, it was reported that according to some satellite uh, pictures, uh, there is one one military base which is quite significant. It's uh, in in uh, Lapland, uh, quite close to the Finnish border, and it was only established in two thousand fourteen. And it is specialized in Arctic warfare, this kind of uh, motorized um, 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 brigade. So um, even there, like that was the last one. Uh, now to also have sent like like where also now equipment has been pulled away and you then assume that also people have been pulled away it looks like there's like at least a battalion that has been has been um that is missing now at that base so it just like kind of indica- indicates that uh, finland is in the end actually quite a low priority for russia even uh, with nato membership um happening um, so um, I think that actually um, the situation is not at all as dire as expected mm-hmm. uh, because Russia is simply too occupied in Ukraine. And, um, and even, um, even if Russia at some point decides that like, okay, this Finnish NATO membership 
does warrant a stronger uh, Russian military presence in the border region, it will take them years to redevelop that right. to any kind of level that can like seriously threaten Finnish defense forces. Absolutely. So, yeah. And Russia has also, Katerina, been doing some aggressive uh, air maneuvers near and I believe even in Swedish airspace. So some of the same concerns may come up. What are the, the risks that Swedish defense planners are seeing during this period before full NATO membership? Yes, as you mentioned, the, there have been aggressive moves. The, there have been airspace violations since uh, February 24th. Uh, the last one, I believe, was in April. Uh, but this is actually not new because we have seen airspace, uh, Russian airspace violations of Swedish airspace prior to, to February 24th as well, and they have intensified significantly over the past uh, 10 years, uh, um, on and off in different periods, I would say. But uh, I think the overall impression is pretty much the same here as in Finland, and um, similar to what, what Nina mentioned. I mean, there, Russia is indeed held up in Ukraine, uh, not entirely though. I mean, the Baltic Sea Fleet is still there and, uh, and not being used. So in a way you could say that they have the capacity and the capability, but not the appetite to do something in the Nordic Baltic region. And that is of course due to the, the, uh, the situation of overreach that uh, they have put themselves in with the um, operation in Ukraine. Uh, I think that we expected more, uh, mm -hmm. similar to what Mina said in Sweden. I mean, after February 24th, there's really been a, a, a high sense of urgency amongst the population. And um, Swedish readiness has sort of never been higher, at least not in my lifetime. And I think that it's a positive sign that we can sort of mobilize and understand the, the sense of urgency. There is a major war in our not far from Sweden uh, going on. But when it comes to actions that are directed directly towards us, uh, we uh, so far uh, haven't seen that much. I mean, there have been some cyber attacks that I guess one could attribute to Russia, that that's the problem with cyber attacks in general, but not any major ones. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to airspace violations, I believe it was just that one that has been reported. Uh, but it was more prior to what happened in Ukraine uh, with the right. uh, amphibious right. warships, as Nina mentioned, for instance. Well, thank you both for joining us on the Lawfare podcast. I have a feeling we'll be revisiting these issues, certainly around the time of full NATO membership and beyond. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Remember, you can get ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. Please remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and do listen to our other podcast products like Rational Security, Chatter, The Aftermath, Allies, and Lawfare Noble. This podcast was edited and engineered by the overworked Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.